Hey, this is Michael Emery. Thanks for tuning into the Slow Baja. This podcast is powered by Tequila Fortaleza, handmade in small batches, and hands down, my favorite tequila. Slow Baja is brought to you by the Baja XL Rally. The Baja XL is the largest and longest amateur off-road rally on the Baja Peninsula. It's 10 epic days, LA to Cabo to LA. Check it out at BajaXL.org. Hey, I'm delighted to be here on Slow Baja with Dr. Paul Ganster at his beautiful home here in San Diego. We're sitting outside. It's a lovely warm day. You may hear some of the wild parrots flying by and uh, um, Dr. Ganster and I are sitting about 15 feet apart. We're being very safe in these COVID days and I'm just delighted to be here. So thank you. Well, thank you for coming and I'm glad we could arrange this and uh, please call me Paul. Well, Paul, on extraordinarily short notice, uh, uh, Edie Littlefield Sunby suggested strongly, strongly, she's a forceful woman, that I get a hold of you. And I'm just returning back from a Baja trip, and you were kind enough to make some time for me. And she has been so kind to uh, connect me to people that she uh, feels have something important to say about Baja. So I'm quite indebted to her to be here today. So let's get on with it. Tell me about uh, your your personal history and and how you how Baja came into your life. Well, I grew up in San Diego from the eighth grade on, and from day one, ended up with various friends, relatives, uh, going into Baja California. Sometimes the typical tourism shopping in on Avenida Revolución, but uh, more often fishing uh, south of Ensenada on the coast. Uh, but in, the, in my junior year of high school, I was at La Jolla High School, I took a class with Harry Crosby, who's my chemistry teacher, and he and I hit it off. Uh, I went on a couple of trips to northwestern Mexico with him, uh, the foothills of Sonora, uh, places that later you really couldn't travel to because of the drug cartels. And uh, we got along very well. I spent a lot of time at his house. I uh, uh, learned photography from him. He was just getting into becoming a professional photographer. Uh, I worked for him a bit when he was doing some furniture designing and manufacturing. And then I went off to uh, college and uh, didn't come back to San Diego really on a permanent basis for 20 years, but had always kept up with Harry and Joanne and his, his family. And uh, after I graduated from Yale, I went to uh, UCLA for my PhD in Latin American history. And in my trips back and forth from uh, Santa Monica to, to La Jolla, I'd always, uh, and San Diego, I'd always see Harry and Joanne. But uh, at that time, uh, this would have been in 1967, he had arranged a commission to photograph the trail followed by the expedition of 
1769 that went from Loreto in Baja California, mid-peninsula, overland up to San Diego to establish uh, San Diego, establish a mission and a presidio. And so uh, he was talking about this and asked if I'd like to accompany him for part of it. So I took a couple of quarters off of my graduate education and in 1967, we appeared in Loreto and uh, arranged uh, animals to transport us, found guides uh, at different places uh, on the journey and eventually ended up following the old El Camino Real up the peninsula and up the spine of the peninsula through the mountains because that's where water is to um, eventually up to uh, San Diego. Parts of it were covered by uh, vehicle, uh, but most on animals, where vehicles simply couldn't get at that time. And that was really an incredible experience. I had a strong interest in uh, colonial history and the whole process of, of settlement and expansion of the Spanish Empire up to San Diego. Uh, Harry uh, had a great interest in uh, the, the environment, in the incredible scenery, and in the really fabulous people that we met, the, the ranch uh, families, who really form a subculture that's, I think, unique in anywhere in the world, of people who've been self-sufficient and very welcoming to outsiders. So in that trip, I got a really good sense of uh, traditional culture in the mountains of Baja California and uh, really made a lasting impression on me. And with Harriet, uh, had an incredible impact on his career because it led to subsequent efforts on exploring and documenting the, the great murals or cave paintings uh, of the mountains of Baja California and led to a number of books including uh, really uh, the most detailed and analytical and well-documented study of the Jesuit period in uh, Baja California. Uh, he really started out to do a, a broader study but realized he had to go back to the beginnings of Baja California and that led to his archival research. And we interacted a lot on that because uh, that was my field of study, colonial, the colonial empire in Spanish America. I ended up doing my PhD research in Lima on uh, colonial society, and then I later uh, worked in the Mexican archives as well. So we always communicated on that. Anyway, fast forward. Uh, uh, many years, really uh, sometime around 2000, uh, I began to return more frequently to the Loreto area, uh, partly uh, from interest, uh, partly because I began to explore various research options uh, in, in the region. By that time, I was a faculty member at San Diego State University uh, where I had been hired in 1984 
to uh, establish an institute dealing with the border region and the peninsula of Baja California. And so I had legitimate professional uh, reasons, and I was always interested in Loreto. When we first entered Loreto in 1967, I remember very clearly, I don't think there was a paved road in town. Um, the mission church structure was more or less intact. It had been repaired in the late 40s and early 50s. Uh, but the settlement of the town was on large square lots, a very uh, non-dense settlement, and really little country ranchos uh, in an urban environment. People had large lots, they all had animals, they had little uh, kitchen gardens, uh, there were uh, mangoes and other types of fruit trees. But it was just a, a delightful place, and one could sense that there was a very strong traditional uh, culture present there, so unlike what one uh, encountered farther north in the peninsula in the very dynamic areas such as Tijuana, for example, which were just growing uh, so, so fast. Well, so around 2000, uh, I began to interact with colleagues I'd met at various uh, international conferences, uh, and we started to uh, think about some research on Baja California, the Gulf area, and my main collaborator really for 25 years has been Oscar Arispe, who's the head of a coastal um, uh, laboratory at the Autonomous University of Baja California in La Paz. He's a marine scientist, and uh, uh, I'm a historian, but we worked together very well and found that combination of our disciplines really gave us the ability to look at sort of human and nature and science uh, and the interactions. Uh, so we uh, have done another, a number of studies over the years, uh, and a couple of them have concentrated on, on Loreto. And what we did was to pull together researchers from the peninsula, from SDSU and occasionally from other universities in the states uh, to look at different aspects of local reality. And the purpose of these was to provide a, a basis of knowledge and understanding that could help inform uh, decision makers in the community, you know, hopefully the community at large, uh, hopefully policy makers, uh, to help them better understand the challenges and opportunities that they faced uh, in managing their region. Before we jump too much into Loreto today and the issues that we're going to discuss, you need to bring me right back to Harry talking to you about, Paul, I want you to come down to Baja with me and we're going to check out the El Camino. And how did you get to Loreto? Did Francisco Munoz fly you down? Did you take a boat? Did you take a car? Well, tell me about that part first. 
and then you glossed over 600 miles on mule <laughs> and your your documentation your intimate detailed documentation of that journey that's provided a lot of information for people who have you know had a chance to reflect on that so let's not gloss over that well when harry and i were getting ready uh to go down to Loretta, where the Camino Real, in essence, uh, began, because that was the head of the California missions and civil government in California at the time, um, we uh, did discuss how to get there. And Harry decided the best thing to do would be to uh, get a vehicle capable of, capable of, of moving across the the difficult roads at the time, there was no paved road going down uh, the peninsula. So uh, he basically built, and I helped a little bit when I had time, uh, a, a modified dune buggy based on a, a VW. And the beauty of the VW base for traveling in Baja California is that they have uh, good traction because the engine's in the rear over the wheels and they have four-wheel independent suspension. Uh, now, if you were in a Dodge Power Wagon on a washboard road, it just shakes your teeth loose uh, and you can't go fast enough to, to, to bounce over the washboard ruts and smooth the, the ride out, but I uh, a dune buggy will, will do that, uh, faster, more comfortable. But we made the mistake of having it a semi-open um, uh, arrangement. We did have some side curtains, but boy, did dust ever uh, leak in. And boy, are the roads dusty some places in Baja California. Uh, nonetheless, we, um, we went down and we actually uh, we went through Mexicali because there had been some winter rains and the San Quentin area uh, had some road washouts and so on. So we went down through Mexicali, San Felipe, and south and cut over to the main highway and then uh, drove into Loreto in, in the dune buggy, which, which worked out uh, uh, just fine. In fact, I... I found some photographs of Harry with the dune buggy uh, not too long ago, and it brought back uh, interesting uh, memories. So were you camping each night, or were you staying in a little uh, whatever accommodations, Papa Diaz or whoever might have accommodations? What, what was your... Yeah, we did both. We, uh, you know, if we could find a, a convenient place to stay, that was fine. Otherwise, we camped out. Uh, in some of the small towns at different... Uh, stages of the trip we just ask around and they'd say oh yeah so and so will uh, rent out a room or a place to stay and and uh, so and so cooks meals and you can get breakfast and and breakfast was universally great uh, wonderful beans and tortillas occasionally with a little bit of uh, uh, meat thrown in but nonetheless or cheese, nonetheless much appreciated. Um, so really we uh, traveled the way people traveled. Uh, I mean, there were commercial travelers that went up and down the peninsula. Uh, 
I guess we would have called them tinkers in the old days in, in the U.S., but people who sold dried goods and uh, anything they could to, to make a living. And we, uh, we did encounter a few of these. They, were, they went by the name of fayuqueros. Uh, uh, but places they would stay, we would end up staying. And of course, once we got off the paved road, uh, then it was staying at the various ranches. And sometimes we'd put a tent up, but more often we'd sleep under a, a ramada, uh, some kind of a, a shelter. Uh, but the weather was uh, always wonderful in uh, November, December, January, February in the peninsula, uh, particularly in the mountains. Life on the trail was, was really quite fascinating because usually we were going with a couple of local cowboys and we had to find different cowboys as we traveled because they tended to know only their region and they knew it really well and intimately but we'd begin to get on the edges of territory that they really understood and we'd have to find someone else to serve as guides and to help uh, uh, manage the animals. Paul, do you have a, do you have a, um, an estimate on what their range is? Is it 30 miles? Is it 50 miles? Because I'd heard this before from Trudy Angel as well as uh, Edie that these Vaqueros, they know their, they know the place. I hate to use a cliche, like the back of their hand, but they know their portion of it. And what's your estimate on that? Is it? Well, you know, I don't know. I, I couldn't give you. <laughs> I hate to say it, but I think it depends. Uh, a few of the cowboys we'd encountered had actually uh, been involved in. Uh, uh, transporting animals or or things to sale uh, for sale uh, products uh, into some of the towns at, at maybe uh, three or four days ride and they knew those trails well but generally the cowboys uh, kind of stuck around uh, their ranches or ranches of relatives and I'm guessing a diameter of I don't know uh, 50 60 miles but I have no way to, to support that guess. Yeah, that's an awful lot when you're going on horseback or muleback or by foot. That, that really is quite a range, frankly, uh, when you yeah, think, when you think uh, about it that way rather than just uh, an hour in the car. Well, a good hard day's riding with pack animals, we could cover 14 miles depending upon the, uh, the terrain and so on. Amazing. And we learned pretty quickly that uh, horses were useless and uh, it was all mules and and the reason is that mule or two reasons one mules uh, could survive on the the forage and the brush and the browse encountered along the trail and secondly when they walked they would put their rear foot exactly where their front foot had been so they could pick their way through boulder fields and rocks uh, very well, and horses couldn't quite do that. Also, mules, uh, although difficult sometimes, tended to be a little calmer, and 
didn't panic the way horses would sometimes. So you could actually have a mule roll over uh, and do a turtle, legs in the air, and remain calm while you went up and uh, took the packs off and somehow got them righted again. I'm not sure that could happen with, with a horse. Uh, on the trail, um, we get up early with the light and get something to eat. Uh, Harry and I brought a lot of oatmeal with us and the cowboys detested it because uh, real men ate meat. <laughs> and is that machaca or something? They've, they've got well, to have something Well, machaca or dried meat or, or just uh, fresh meat. You know, you could take a slab of fresh meat and keep it covered uh, for a couple of days and it would just get tenderer and tenderer as you, as you went along. You can't see me smiling behind my mask, but I'm <laughs> smiling with my eyes, yes. Tenderer and tenderer. <laughs> and, and actually yeah. by the third day I was usually pretty good. I mean, just like going down to your local supermarket. Okay. Um, and so, you know, we'd be up and off. Of course, coffee was, uh, was critical and Coffee is a, a Baja California uh, necessity. It's a social institution. In towns like Loreto, historically, uh, visiting for morning coffee was a major uh, social event of, of the local people. And uh, I remember walking around Loreto uh, in the little time we spent there in 1967, and you could just smell the coffee early in the in the morning uh, really fabulous and on the trail when you'd pull into a ranch the first thing they would do would be to pull out uh, uh, the coffee making materials and and everyone would have a cup of coffee while you um, and socialized let me interject there that's ground beans and poured through a sock or you're in an enamel pot that's pretty traditional coffee right you're not yeah. you're not doing nescafe uh, you still find some people doing it, and uh, uh, it's basically filter coffee with a uh, using just a, a cloth bag. Right. Uh, and it's actually a similar method used in Costa Rica until relatively uh, recently, but it produces a very rich uh, uh, coffee. Uh, very often they would buy. Uh, unroasted beans and, the, and just toast the beans and then grind them and and that would be the coffee. Uh, I never saw them preparing cowboy coffee the way we we do it by boiling uh, the grounds uh, and then just uh, trying to uh, Let pour it off the coffee without getting too much grit. Right. Uh, and so the, the ranch coffee was pretty standard and pretty wonderful. Uh, one, one difference, though, is uh, Harry and I like black coffee. Uh, and the ranch people tended to like it with sweets, with sugar. So we always had a discussion about uh, uh, what coffee was yeah. best. Yeah, I'm a black coffee drinker as well. Hey, what was your role on that trip? What did Harry sell you on? What did you do? Because I know you produced drawings which you haven't talked about yet, but what, what, other, what other duties did you have? How was it broken down? Was it broken down formally or just informally? No, just, uh, you know, we'd traveled enough together that, and we got on pretty well, so 
uh, I just, uh, you know, helped with everything. Uh, I helped the cowboys with the animals. Uh, I'd climb up in trees with a machete and, and chop off branches in, in the Palo Verdes that the mules would crunch on all night. Like all Yale men. Right. You've got your machete and you can do any job you need to. Right. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I, I took trail notes. I, uh, I, I took a lot of photographs. In fact, some, a lot of the photographs in Harry's books that are of him, I actually took. Can we talk a little bit about your equipment? Because I'm a photographer as well, and I think, I think listeners would just be interested in, did you just have rolls of Tri-X and a, an old Nikon or a Pentax, or what, what no, gear I had, did you have? Uh, a Rolleiflex? I think I think for that trip, if I remember correctly, I had a Bronica outfit. Wow, not fooling around. Yeah, it's uh, uh, and and Harry had uh, a couple of different things. Uh, one of them was a um, Hasselblad Super Wide C, and I'm not sure he took it on that. But we both had what you'd call large or medium format cameras using the 120 film, and. Triac sometimes, but usually it was a slower speed, high resolution, and so Kodachrome in those days or Ektachrome. Well, uh, we did both. Uh, we did black and white, and uh, uh, actually the the color that I tended to use was Ektachrome, but also Agfachrome. Okay, and I've noticed. Uh, Many years later, the, the ag for chrome dyes have held up pretty well, and so some of them are still pretty uh, uh, vivid, the, the, the color shots. Well, you had to be very good as a photographer. I'm assuming you had a handheld light meter or something, but you uh, had to really know your stuff in those days. Oh, yeah, I mean... To shoot uh, <laughs> with slide film in the field, not yeah. see it developed, of course, for weeks or months, and well, transport it carefully... Do what you could to keep it from baking in the sun. Yeah, uh, we 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 uh, just accumulated lots of exposed rolls, and then when we got back or somebody was going back, we just took it in uh, to be developed, or we would process it ourselves if it was black and white. I'd done a lot of black and white uh, lab work. Uh, I'd uh, traveled. Uh, you know, many many areas taking lots of photographs. So I I was pretty pretty experienced. At one time, I thought about becoming a professional photographer, but interest led me in a in a different direction. In terms of transporting the stuff, we 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 constructed special saddlebags to fit on the animals. Uh, so we could actually access things on on the trail, uh, yet everything was padded with foam and, and protected from uh, banging into cactus and brush and that sort of thing. And what sort of attire? What what clothing were you wearing? I imagine your your jeans would have been shredded by the end of a trip. Well, like that. I I just wore jeans and uh, did you have chaps? And, uh, you know, uh, cotton work shirts. And uh, there are parrots. And uh, uh, hiking boots of a sort. I didn't. I didn't take cowboy boots because uh, we knew we'd be 
a lot of walking, so I had something that was a little bit sturdier. And we, we both generally had leggings of one sort or another to, to keep uh, thorns from penetrating into our uh, legs as we rode through the brush. Uh, but, you know, things, things held up pretty well on the trail, and, uh, you know, we didn't uh, wear them out by washing them or anything like that. So uh, I used to joke that after about two or three days on the trail, things didn't matter much because we smelled just like the mules at that time. Well, uh, again, you sketched maps. I read here that uh, you sketched maps that showed the complexities of trail and terrain. Tell me about those complexities. Well, what uh, the method we used for following the trail was to, first of all, get the best topo maps that we could. And the Mexican government had a fairly decent series available at that time. Uh, and then, uh, we uh, used the various uh, descriptions that were available of the trail by uh, members of the original expedition and by later travelers. And uh, then in talking to the cowboys, you know, we'd describe what, what, what we had found, and particularly Harry had gone through and made a concordance of all of the different trail descriptions. Uh, we were able to talk to the cowboys about that, and they'd have a discussion and say, oh yeah, that goes on that side of the peak, it crosses the arroyo at that place, and then they'd talk about whether uh, there were any obvious physical remains, because in most areas of the Camino Real, and remember, there are many branches of it, and some were used, some uh, were uh, renewed because of weather problems and washouts and so on. Uh, but pretty soon the cowboys with us learned to recognize uh, trails that had actually been built, uh, particularly on the, uh, the climbs and, and the downhill places where sometimes construction was necessary both to preserve the trail and to make it passable for uh, mules, or across some of the desert stretches, uh, uh, the Jesuits had gone through, and it looked as though they surveyed it and threw the rocks out to the side and ended up with a perfectly straight line across a, a broad flat mesa or broad, broad flat arroyo. So discussions with uh, the cowboys and local people about routes was always uh, something that um, uh, we engaged in and was complicated. And occasionally we got led uh, off course by a lazy cowboy, but we figured that out pretty quickly and would have to do some backtracking. Here at Slow Baja, we can't wait to drive our old Land Cruisers out the border. When we go, we'll be going with Baja Bound Insurance. Their website's fast and easy to use. Check them out at BajaBound.com. That's BajaBound.com, serving Mexico travelers since 1994. Hey, Baja Tourism is picking up, and our friends at the Animal Pad and Tap Act want to remind you when you're crossing the border, just say no to puppy peddlers. I know they're cute. 
but the sooner we can end the demand, we can end the supply. For more information, check out theanimalpad.org and tap act on Instagram and Facebook. Well, we're back with Paul Ganster here in his house. The parrots are still with us. It's a beautiful sunny day. We're sitting in the shade, and we're just going to jump right back into we were talking about the El Camino. And you, Paul, I don't think you talked about, um, you've, you've mentioned the Jesuits. Uh, that's Portola, as we say in San Francisco, Portola. Yeah, Portola. Portola. Portolo, as they say, Portola. Well, they call it, it's, it should be in Spanish, Portola. But, that's, that's, uh, the way the, that's the way those in the know in San Francisco say it. Can you break down the uh, Portola to Sarah and how the, 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 the mission period came and when it was at its peak and then when it dissipated and they handed it off and, and what well, happened with the El Camino? The, and lastly, your opinion on the El Camino's value of history. In quite er early on uh, in the 16th century, uh, really by the 1540s, Spanish uh, explorations on the land and on the sea had pretty much uh, mapped out the north, and that includes the peninsula of Baja California and uh, a bit of the California uh, coast. Uh, and they realized there weren't really any exploitable wealth uh, uh, in the area and instead concentrated on central Mexico. But the peninsula was important for one major reason, and that was the Manila Galleon, the annual ship that came over from uh, the Philippines, uh, loaded with uh, Chinese products. Uh, it would go north along the coast of Japan, across the northern Pacific, and hit the coast in Northern California or Oregon and then come down the coast uh, to Acapulco. But by the time they, they hit the California coast, the, the crew uh, tended to be in very bad condition because of months without proper diet and so on. And so they needed a port to um, refresh themselves, get water and so on. And that led to the settlement of the Baja California uh, Peninsula. Uh, because it was such a godforsaken place full of rocks and, and, uh, and thorns, as one Jesuit uh, described it, uh, the Crown didn't want to undergo the expense and instead worked out an arrangement with the Jesuits to have that as their exclusive mission field to save souls. Uh, with a little bit of support and the civil authorities, the army as well. But in essence, the Jesuits undertook it as a project they financed through charitable contributions, and they established uh, their first headquarters in Loreto, and then went inland and south, and eventually occupied the southern part of the peninsula. In uh, 1767, the Jesuits were expelled from the Spanish Empire for all of the political intrigue, and uh, the crown named the Franciscans to take over. But the Franciscans uh, didn't want to just take over missions that were declining in, in uh, Indian population rapidly, and so they got involved in the thrust 
north and up the coast of California uh, because the imperial authorities were very concerned that the Russians were coming across the Bering Strait and down into the north. And so there was a real competition for empire and there was a need, a, a political need, to expand up the coast as quickly as possible. So uh, the Spanish government organized and authorized uh, uh, expeditions to establish mission, presidios, uh, eventually towns going up uh, California and eventually they reached as far as Sonoma, north of San Francisco. So that the Franciscans uh, undertook initially managing the Baja California mich missions, but once they got into California, they left the field to the Dominicans who came in later. So there were the shifting uh, uh, mission orders uh, involved, and that was always an important part of the conquest on the frontier. Uh, we, uh, in Baja California Sur, there's nothing left of the indigenous past other than physical remains, cave paintings, and so on. The indigenous people were so hard hit by the European diseases and social dislocation that uh, their numbers declined rapidly and, uh, and very, very tragically. Uh, I just wanted to mention that uh, life on the trail up the peninsula is very interesting because uh, every, every so often you'd encounter petroglyphs obviously made during the mission period of crosses and so on, uh, constructed uh, uh, dams to hold water, uh, uh, little uh, irrigation canals, constructed roads. So the, the presence of the, the missionaries uh, was palpable. Uh, and then even more importantly, the presence of the uh, colonial uh, social traditions and culture was present in the ranch families in many ways. And finally, in the intimate knowledge of the landscape and the ethnobotany, the uses of plants and even the uses of animals, it was pretty clearly that, that, that a lot of traditional indigenous learning had been passed on to the natives to the, uh, uh, what we call natives of the mid-peninsula, the Hispanic uh, uh, descendants of the missionary soldiers. So all of these things became uh, available uh, if, you were, if you thought about it on the trail. And uh, there was lots of time to think on the trail because uh, uh, at night we hit the sack pretty early and I remember lying on, a, uh, on my back uh, in a sleeping bag. We didn't use tents because it just wasn't necessary. But looking up overhead and with our bare eyes, we could see Russian satellites going north and south. Uh, uh, they had satellites that went up the, the west coast to look at our military. But being able to see those, uh, uh, it was kind of like looking from the 18th century to the 20th century at that time. It's, it's interesting that you would touch on that because the, the nights are so inky black in Baja 
and it must have been even more so then going back 50 years ago I, I you know my experience is 80s forward and to think about the newness of a satellite in space there's not a lot moving around in the sky in those days and to be able to say hey that's a russian satellite going by that's really astonishing yeah it was uh, quite interesting and it's just something i've always uh, uh remembered can, can you can i break you off of that for a second i just had some thoughts again i'm just back from a baja trip in my 1990s forerunner normally i'm in my 1971 Toyota Land Cruiser, which is completely stock, and it's just a just a step up from the burrows that you were on. It really it really takes a toll on your body. What was it like on your body? What were those nights like when you got off the the burrow? How did your body feel? You're a young young man, but look, I was 21 or 22, and uh, you know I'd played football. I'd done a lot of hiking in the Sierras as a kid, and was used to pretty strenuous. Uh, uh, life done a lot of diving and and swimming and body surfing and uh, you know we'd be bone tired at the end of the day but still enough energy to climb up in the trees and and cut down branches for the mules and and help pack them up in the morning and uh, uh, although some people don't believe it just sitting on a a mule for 14 hours is is a pretty big physical effort. It's got to be exhausting. Particularly when you're going across very rough terrain. Yeah, and, uh, your, your and core just must be amazing, the, the toll on your body. Yeah, but, you know, look at look at the cowboys. They did this stuff all day, every day, and uh, and uh, they're just fine. But, but sure, uh, we're, we're pretty sore for a few days, but then things evened out, and... Nobody to complain to. Yeah. yeah, nobody to complain to, so you just get on with it. Yeah, we just got on with it, and uh, that's, that's the way things were. All right, well, uh, let's... let's let, let me... Uh, oh, go ahead. Let me sort of detour back to a more modern time, if, if that's okay. Please, and, I was just going to... And contemporary this. Loretto. Um, although I love looking back and remembering what, uh, what the world was like in the uh, 1960s and 70s. The Loreto today, uh, despite growth spurts, still retains a charm and a, 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 a cultural sense and cultural traditions that harken back to the 18th and 19th centuries. And it's, it's an existence and really a social reality that uh, that's under threat uh, by a couple of things. Probably most importantly is what I call the hyper-development of, of major tourism development. The Mexican government in the 70s came up with a policy to develop tourism resorts to attract foreign people with hard currency, uh, mainly uh, uh, people from the U.S., but also from Canada and, and Europe. And so they developed a model that we've all seen in Cancun or parts of Acapulco or the major coastal resorts. And that was the fate of Los Cabos and uh, 
They also attempted it in Loreto, but things never took off in Loreto for, for various reasons. And the problem with planting a large uh, sand and sun development in a place like Loreto is that it totally overwhelms local society and local culture. Uh, it, in essence, it, it erases it. And a unique thing about Loreto is its historical tradition and culture. And it's something that I feel is important to be saved. In the uh, early 2000s, the Mexican tourism group, or Fonatur, again tried to uh, stimulate massive development of Loreto, which started with a Canadian developer with some good ideas, but eventually they, they wanted to sort of treble the population uh, and, and build all kinds of dense coastal development. And what saved Loreto from that was the recession of 2008, multiple bankruptcies, uh, and so it attenuated development and slowed it down. Uh, however, now they seem to be making another effort, and we'll just have to see how that goes. Uh, fortunately, or unfortunately, Mexico is in difficult financial straits now, uh, because of COVID, but also the policies of the new Mexican administration, which isn't so much uh, concerned about development of big tourism areas, but uh, has a strong focus on uh, social welfare, which uh, is uh, fairly new. So Loreto does face the threat of development and the natural resources of Loreto can only support a certain amount of people. Uh, water is, is scarce, fresh water is scarce, and it's a constant crisis. And there's also something we call the view shed. One of the values of Loreto is the, the wonderful views up to the mountains and out to the sea. But the minute you start putting up a wall of high rises along the beach, that's destroyed for everyone and can never be uh, recovered. So in a sense, um, development is an existential threat to the traditional Loreto and people who live in Loreto, if not managed properly. And for years, it's been obvious to me and other researchers and uh, people interested in sustainability that the path forward should really be looking at alternative tourism. Uh, things such as uh, what uh, Trudy does, uh, leading mule rides, having people visit ranches. It keeps the cowboys and the ranches in business. Uh, ecological tours out to the islands. It employs the, the fishermen instead of depleting fishing stocks. Um, this type of tourism is generally uh, run by family-run firms, income is distributed more evenly. Uh, it, it creates a, an economy where money recirculates and doesn't all go out to Mexico City or the U.S. 
And the Camino Real uh, could be a very important part of that. If the Camino is declared a World Heritage Site and local tourism agencies, state and federal, uh, do what they can to help organize uh, the Camino Real as a tourism site and destination. And we have good examples of how this can work. For example, uh, the Appalachian Trail, uh, the Pacific Crest Trail, and the, and the Camino de Santiago in northern Spain. So there are some movements now to, to use this wonderful colonial resource, the Camino Real, as a tourism destination that would not only be historical, but goes through fabulous uh, uh, geology, through uh, ecosystems of plants and animals that are, that are just wonderful and, and very exotic. So the, the, tourist, the course of tourism for uh, Loreto is, um, I think, very important. And Loreto has been named one of the magic towns of, of Mexico, small towns with traditional uh, value, and uh, if they can retain that, that's terrific, uh, and not become a tragic town and go the wrong uh, direction. Loreto has a number of really, I think, existential challenges to worry about right now. Currently, COVID, uh, which uh, is a huge issue, and I don't think Loreto is managing it very well. People aren't wearing masks or they're not social distancing. I mean, to tell a large extended Mexican family to social distance is very difficult. It doesn't work in Loreto, it doesn't work in San Diego. Um, people say, well, but it's family, how could that hurt? And that's really unfortunate. Um, but other threats that are a little bit below the radar right now is climate change. Uh, in, our, in our recent uh, book, my friends who are leading climate scientists and others point out that Loreto is already seeing effects of climate change through increasing temperatures. That means lower nighttime temp or higher nighttime temperatures and higher daytime temperatures. So things during the hot season don't cool down as much. Uh, periods of drought tend to become a little more extended. Uh, extreme weather will continue to be as bad or worse, plus sea level rise is particularly uh, critical for Loreto. If you look at the maps of the projecting what it's going to be like when sea level rises one meter or a half a meter, you'll see that large parts of urban Loreto in the old town will be inundated plus a lot of new developments to the south in Nopolo will also have some problems. So you combine sea level rise with storm surge because sooner or later a hurricane is going to uh, hit Loreto directly again as it has in the past. Um, caught us flooding in the Royos. That, that's a real uh, disaster. And there are um, things, steps that can be taken the municipality is aware of them, and some private groups are starting to do these things, such as restoration of dunes and vegetation to, to really hold the coastal uh, barriers. 
Another existential threat to some extent is water. Uh, Loretto is always on the verge of running out of water and they authorize development without really considering where the water is going to come from. And the aquifers uh, don't replenish rapidly. Um, so that's just a long-term concern. And uh, desalination is one solution, but it's very difficult to discharge the highly saline uh, remnants of that process into a national park that's an important marine reserve because those saline waters kill a lot of juvenile species. So that, that's a real uh, difficult question that Loretto's are going to have to come to grips with. And also Fonatur sends the wrong message because they still have medians and large areas of um, uh, of these new developments that are in grass that are water hogs. They look nice and golf courses look nice, but boy, they use a lot of water and that's really unfortunate. Paul, you've, you've co-authored a book about this. You've been thinking about Loretto for more than 50 years now. Where are some positives? Where, where do you, what, what brings you back to Loretto? What on balance gives you some hope? Because it can't, I, I, we just can't exist with full, you know, uh, negative thoughts, I, I, even though they, they probably are correct. What gives you some hope? Well, I think the, the, the positive of Loretto, is, well, there are a couple. I think first and foremost are what I call the human capital. Uh, the people, the culture, the historic traditions of the people in the region. And in a sense, that goes from even urban residents to, of course, the rural residents. Uh, just really uh, wonderful and interesting people. Uh, secondly, of course, the incredible natural scenery is something that uh, uh, can't be duplicated. Uh, a trip out on the bay in the early morning with dolphins uh, uh, jumping uh, a walk around one of the protected islands. Uh, uh, people who do scuba dive uh, enjoy that. Plus everything in the Sierra La Giganta, uh, uh, a fabulous natural region. I mean, those are, those are some of the uh, attractions. The unpar unparalleled natural beauty of the region is certainly a, uh, an attraction and the absence of Cancun-type uh, or Los Cabos-type uh, development is a huge attraction as well. So uh, we're going to wrap it up here. I'd like, people, I'd like you to tell us about the book, the title of the book again, and where people can find it, and where people can find out more about you and your writings, and if you want to be in touch, how that occurs, if that's indeed something you're interested in. Oh, okay. Uh, well, the the book that was published in 2020 by SDSU Press and is available through, can be ordered through Ana, Amazon, either as a, a Kindle format electronically or a hard copy, is titled Loreto, Mexico, Challenges for a Sustainable Future. And the chapters deal with things such as an analysis of Loreto 
uh, Bay National Park. Uh, we have a study on local government, how it's structured and how it's supposed to work. Uh, a couple of colleagues look at the issue of electric power in Loreto. There's no reason why Loreto should be burning uh, dirty fuel oil for, for electricity. Uh, the, the solar resources are incredible. Uh, we look at economic structure and well-being in Loreto. What's the, what, what's the economic quality of life of people in Loreto? Uh, we examine uh, small fishing and what f fishermen or fishers are doing to earn a living now and how they've been able to link with uh, sustainable tourism. Uh, another chapter looks at the Camino Real and the proposals to create that as a World Heritage Site. Uh, and do you think the odds are pretty good that UNESCO will will move on that? I think so. I mean, it's it's an awfully bold vision, but I, I think it's a no-brainer. Uh, it, it, it is a no-brainer, but uh, it's slowly moving th through the bureaucracy. So Poco you add the U.N. bureaucracy to the Mexican bureaucracy, and it, it's, it just takes a little while. Uh, and, and we so also have chapters on climate change and the threat of mining, which has the potential to totally wipe out the sustainability in the region, water resources, and then a final chapter tries to pull out all that together and talk about the uncertain road ahead. And the basic message is, look, Loreto has this wonderful base of human capital and historic tradition. It's facing um, a number of very clear threats. Uh, and really, people in Loreto need to become engaged and make the decisions necessary to uh, to re retain quality of life in the region. Well, uh, Paul Ganster, you've been very, very, very generous on very short notice with some time and a lot of information and great stories about Baja and Loreto of yore and Loreto of today. So if people want to be in touch with you, do you have a, a public profile that folks can find or are you, uh, are you not playing that? Well, Google me and you'll track me down. That's, okay. And you'll That's find my... Uh, You'll find my email and all that kind of stuff. That's the easiest way. Well, I really appreciate you spending some time and talking about uh, our mutual passion of Baja. So thank you very much. Many thanks, Michael. Hey, you guys know what to do. Please help us by subscribing, sharing, rating, all that stuff. And if you missed anything, you can find the links in the show notes at slowbaja.com. I'll be back before you know it. And if you want to receive notices on new episodes, please follow Slow Baja on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for you old folks.